There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis and they have a look back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got Jay Livingston. He's the chief marketing officer at Shake Shack. Jay was previously on the show when he was CMO at BarkBox, and that was episode 96, (laughs) quite a number of episodes ago. But Jay is back today to talk about his background as an investor, a film producer, political polling, and also CMO. We also talk about Shake Shack, where it started, how its origin story um, needs to be marketed today, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jay Livingston. Jay, welcome to the show. I should say welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. It's uh feels like years ago that we did the previous version. I'm excited to do the the updated one. It has been, I think, years. If my memory serves me correctly, I think you were in the sub 100, episode 96, I, I want to say. And and I am, I think I just released or I'm about to release like 334, 335. So I hopefully I've gotten better at this and, and obviously you have. So uh, we'll, we'll be in good, good shape today, I think. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to start off, we always like to start off with something interesting about the individual. And I know from your background, you're not just a CMO, like you, you're a CMO, obviously, but you're, you're an investor, 
you're a film producer, got something going on in the political polling space. So what is all of that about? Tell me a little bit more about why you have all these interests. You know, if there's one common thread that rolls through them all, it's kind of storytelling. And I've always been interested in the way people tell stories. And so I was at Bank of America, as you know, for 20 years, I was recruited out of undergrad to the company and sort of managed most functional areas of marketing and strategy there at some point or another. And that the growth of uh, Bank of America was, I think it was a kind of a big regional bank when I started. And 16 years later, it was the fourth most profitable company in the world. So in its own way, we think about it as a behemoth, but it's a massive growth story as well. And I've told this story before, but they have a thing there called the rule of 60, which is your age plus years of service. So when I turned 41, I basically hit that and you can retire uh, with certain benefits when you do that. And I had been working essentially for 20 years with no more than two weeks vacation in a row. And I said, I told him about a year out, I said, I'm going to take this retirement thing, which they had gotten rid of years ago, but I was grandfathered in. And they said, okay, I'm going to take a couple years off and I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to restore an old muscle car. I'm going to learn to play guitar. I renovated an old loft in the West Village. And I also wanted to do a little bit more like angel investing and potentially explore like film producing. I always had the idea that I would jump back in and be a, a CMO somewhere, but I really had a bunch of these projects I was just interested in. As you can tell, I'm a project person. So that kind of gave me a chance to indulge a little bit even more in some of the angel investing that I was doing and and the film production. Well, I mean, I only wish I had done it differently. (laughs) And and I I had had joined Bank of America when you did, because that sounds fantastic. It's like a a mini sabbatical slash retirement before getting back at it. I mean, if we could all structure our careers, I definitely think the a long-term sabbatical two to three times during your career is the greatest thing ever, right? And it's kind of a bummer that it is hard to do that because you worry about losing that momentum and have you become irrelevant somehow, especially as you get a little bit older. It's hard to step off that. And I I really feel privileged that I was able to do it and, and kind of get my foot into some of these other areas that I wouldn't have been been able to do otherwise. Well, you've already started to answer my next question, which is kind of this pathway to become CMO at Shake Shack. So Bank of America, early start, kind of sabbatical, start to do a bunch of projects that you just interested, passionate about. When did you make the decision to to get back into the CMO game and, and where did where did you go next, if you will? Honestly, a lot of that came out of the angel investing space because one of the things I was basically doing is investing in these startups where I thought the founders were really interesting. And, you know, most startups in New York City are started by people with either a tech or a finance background. And if they're consumer facing six months in, they're a marketing business, whether they like it or not, right? Because they have to, they have to sell. And I had some friends in the tech and finance space say, hey, would you come look at this business or maybe talk to this founder about marketing or tell us what you think? And I was really enjoying meeting these aggressive young founders in a lot of these spaces that I didn't know clearly and learning about how they were selling their products in ways that maybe I wasn't getting exposure to at Bank of America. And so that kind of told me like, I love being, the bank had gotten so big. I loved being close to the customer again, right? Close to these growth stories of people that were really understanding deeply these markets and able to pivot very quickly. And so The other thing that gave me, I wasn't planning it this way, but it gave me a little credibility in that space 
So when I decided to start talking to a couple of companies about being a CMO of a growth company, they obviously said, what's this guy that's been at a big bank going to be able to come in and do, you know, as a CMO here. But I had a roster of a bunch of, of founders and so forth and VCs that I had worked with who said, no, this guy gets it. Like he's got good insight here. He can really help. And that actually, I think, helped grease the wheels a little bit for me to be taken, you know, more seriously in that growth marketing space. I'm sorry, in that growth stage. Well, Jay, I think the last time we talked, you were CMO at BarkBox, and then you made the transition to CMO at Shake Shack a little while later. And I think I got that right. But tell me if I got it wrong and, and, and kind of what made you, what was the impetus to get back in the game? What were you looking for? Well, when I knew I was going to take a CMO role, I kind of knew that there were three criteria I wanted for that next job. And it's, I wanted to be at a consumer-facing company that makes a physical product that brings people joy. And dogs are obviously one of those uh, spaces that people have a tremendous amount of passion for and the product is awesome. And that felt like a great fit. And if there's anything that has the same sort of passion for people as dogs, it's probably food and burgers in particular. And so, you know, it's just Shake Shack is a great passion brand that was having an incredible growth story already. And I'd always loved burgers and shakes and food. And so that was just a really compelling, authentic story that I was excited to jump into. Well, and I mean, what a fantastic company to join. I mean, nothing, BarkBox was great too. I've got Two pit bull mixed dogs here. We go through defluffers more than I can imagine because they're bully breeds and they love to pull stuff apart. <laughs> but we equally, my, my wife, my daughter, we have our own favorite Shake Shack just down the road from us in McLean, Virginia at the Tyson's Mall. And I probably shouldn't say this to you, Jay, but like there's also a five guys there and occasionally... We didn't have a Shake Shack where we moved from to here. And I, I would say, you know, do you want to go to Five Guys? And my daughter would be like, no, that's no. Shake Shack's a better burger. <laughs> I'm like, okay. No comment, but I love hearing that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, she's 15. She's already making food choices for the whole family, which is great because I agree. It is a good burger. So back to the original question, like Shake Shack's a great business. I mean, I don't know the origin story though. And I'm, I'm also curious, like how... What was your connection in, if that makes sense? Maybe it was the investing community, potentially. Well, the origin story is actually, you know, Danny Meyer, who is CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group and has um, written an amazing book called Setting the Table that's been influential for maybe millions of people sort of in the hospitality space. His flagship restaurant, 11 Madison Park, which was, as you know, one of the best restaurants in the world, was sitting on the edge of Madison Square Park, which was deteriorated and had had a lot of problems. And he was looking for a way to raise money in the park, so for the park. So they put a hot dog cart out there where they sold sort of elevated hot dogs that there was just massive lines and excitement for. And they did that for a couple of years and said, we think this is like something we should build a more permanent place in the park to donate back. And so they built the first Shake Shack and they were making the burgers in the kitchen of, you know, one of the best dining rooms, the best restaurants in the world and serving them there. And they really realized that, man, this is amazing product market fit, even though at the time they weren't thinking it would be what it's become today, which was really a real fine dining burger in a fast, casual environment. And, you know, our mission is to stand for something good. And the origin of that is actually people standing in line at the hot dog cart and later the Shake Shack in Madison Square Park 
they're standing for something good. They're waiting for great food, great ingredients, but also to help support the park uh, with the proceeds that still go to the park today, proceeds from that shack. So that's been kind of the core of how we started. And we've really tried to apply that to the business with, with everything we do ever since then. Well, and did you have a connection with either Danny or the, the company overall, like through your investing activity? Like, I, I'm curious how that came about, or maybe you just got a call one day. I don't know. No, I had watched the story for years and thought it was an amazing one. And I got wind that so somebody reached out to me actually about the CMO position and said, you really need to meet Randy, who's the CEO. He said, I think you two would get along no matter what comes of it. And so I said, sure. And we grabbed coffee and we just totally hit it off. And I thought both his vision for the business was amazing and his personality too. And one little piece of advice, you know, I give people that are thinking about being a CMO or really their manager in general, but especially if you're a CMO, you've got to really vibe with the CEO, especially if it's a founder-led business. Because, you know, you can be great at your job as the IT lead, the chief technology officer, or frankly, even the CFO or others. You don't have to vibe with the the CEO and the founder along with just being good at your job. But when you're in the CMO seat, and if you guys don't have similar taste and feel uh, in the way of looking at things, it's going to be a problem. And it's one reason where CMO tenures are famously short, right? At all these companies is because that is hard to get right. And I really felt that that we had that and that was an important thing for me. And it's been totally true the whole time. I mean, we, we, we just really see things a lot of similar ways, but we're also able to disagree on things. And, and that's a great position to be in with your, with your boss. Yeah. So how does this role differ or how do you think about the CMO position differently from maybe other CMO roles out in the world? Well, I've got a little bit of a great advantage because I get to also oversee product, all our great culinary team and all the menu innovation that we do. We have the Shake Shack Innovation Kitchen down here in the West Village, where in the basement, you can actually walk through the shack and go into the ground floor. We have a kitchen. We work on our constant new menu items. And overseeing product and pricing and all those things gives us the opportunity to build marketing into the product. So nobody ever hands me or my team a product and says, go sell it. And then if it doesn't sell well, they say, hey, man, you didn't sell this thing well enough. Like, what's the problem? It's, it's all the responsibility is all on us, which is great. But we really get to build marketing into the product from the beginning. You know, a good example of that is we have a Hot Ones LTO right now, a spicy chicken sandwich and burger that we don't have a lot of money at this stage for mass advertising and telling our story. We don't even do mass advertising. So we went to Hot Ones and First We Feast. There's a great show there that Sean Evans runs where he has celebrities eat progressively hotter chicken wings. And we said, why don't we build that burger with them? And then we've got a partner that is a not only an expert on spicy food, but has a huge media network that can talk about our product and it's good for them, it's good for us. And so we really built that from scratch and that product's doing amazing right now in the market. It's awesome. And it's also gotten a lot of exposure because of First We Feast and and Sean and the show. And if we were separate from that group, from the culinary team, I think that would not have happened. There's one other piece. I also get to oversee the digital experience. So the app, web, kiosks, delivery, we can also control that guest experience through those channels and really try to bring hospitality to the digital channels with everything we do there. So I get a neat and broad purview over the organization. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. No, I mean, uh, it's you've got kind of some golden keys to the castle there with, with culinary, the digital side, pricing and menu. I've got to ask this question because my daughter is going to ask me, Shake Shack is just good, right? Like, do you really have to market it? <laughs> it's funny. And I'll say one of the things that I don't do, I don't sit in the kitchen while we're tasting food and say, man, the mouthfeel of this is just a little off. I, I need more balanced acid. You know, we have like couple amazing like celebrity chefs basically and Danny and Randy or all these guys. What I'm saying is like, what's the story we're trying to tell with this and how, and how do we build like a great story into it? What I will say to answer your question directly is it is a great brand, but people really know it in New York City. And as we move out of New York City into the rest of the country and you get into more suburban markets and, you know, the Midwest and the South and these kind of places away from the coast, we do have to tell our story more They don't, frankly, we know folks don't understand our ingredient story and the fine dining burger in a fast casual environment story. So that's where all the marketing we do around social and PR and local community activation. We do just a tremendous amount of experiential stuff, chef collabs, et cetera. We're doing all that to try to tell that story more. And frankly, it's something we got to keep working at. But we are in 19 countries now, and often we open in countries where we have huge lines and it's hard to explain why that is. We opened in Manila and have had huge lines every day there. It's hard to explain, but there's something about the brand and the company that does capture people's attention. But as you really scale, you can't ever stop marketing and telling your story. Well, I mean, 19 countries, you still got lines when you open. I mean, it's 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 good times. It's good times right now. So I think it's local cart to 400 shacks. Is that right? Across the, across the globe and growing? Something like that. 400, we're at, we're opening a new one about one every three days somewhere in the world. And we own them all in the US and then we license to one licensee per country overseas. Okay, gotcha. So one every couple of days. And how do you, so, and you're opening in all those different geographies that you just mentioned, you know, across the US and foreign and international markets. How do you think about maintaining like your local relevance, if you will? One big thing we do is we try to be a part of those communities. You know, a goal of ours is someone that says it's my Shake Shack versus a Shake Shack. We kind of know we've got you. When somebody says, hey, my Shake Shack is the Upper East Side, you know, I always love hearing that. Just like you said, your Shake Shack was, uh, I believe, Tyson's Corner. So that's always a great thing. And to do that, you know, we want to be a part of that community. We work with local artists when we open the shack, everything from the hoardings, which are basically the wraps around the shacks uh, before we open to the some of the interiors of those shacks. We partner with local purveyors and chefs on some of the 
LTOs that we have when we open. And just being part of that community is a big thing for us. We even that stand for something good roles there where we do donation days in those shacks over the course of of their life. And we never want to feel like a chain. And because we're not, those are all kind of mini restaurants in many ways. I mean, they are GMs. We empower them to act like entrepreneurs. They have a lot of control over that guest experience and what happens there. That's very intentional and and not like a, a lot of the other competitors out there. Yeah. So from local, you got your product, culinary, you said you're not in the doing the mouthfeel stuff, but how are you thinking about culinary and, and kind of fostering that element, if you will? Because I, I think you've got some partnerships going on as well. Yeah. And one of the things that when we started, Randy, it's funny, Randy asked me, what's your first hire going to be as you continue to build the team. And I said, it's going to be a guest insights and analytics person because we are extremely and have always been and will continue to be instinct led. But what we weren't necessarily was data supported. So I'm a huge believer in combining those two things. We always want to fly with our instincts, but having more information about our guest what they like and want from us, how we're doing with them. We didn't really have that capability in place. So we built a great guest insights function that informs us about and gives us a lot of ideas and also occasionally keeps us from getting in trouble somehow. Because if you're very instinct led, you do want something to occasionally say, "Uh, not so sure that's going to go well. And that's what the data function has given us. And a big thing we talk about is having modern fun versions of the classics. We're not trying to be gimmicky or trendy or come up with something that's the next cronut necessarily. We're looking to take great burgers and do something that nobody else could like a truffle burger that nobody outside of fine dining could do that burger right other than us. And that's really just a, an elevated version of a great burger anyway. So those are the kind of things that we're always looking to do with our with our menu innovation. I love that. And that, I really like that. In, how did you say instinct led data supported or something, something to that degree? Because it, it actually, I mean, I did a, even started a company with another data scientist. And I think a lot of people that maybe have not grown up in the data insights world don't realize that actual data scientists, the good ones will tell you it takes human intuition to find the truth in the data. And what I've always described that as is like, you have to know the right questions to ask the data and the, knowing the right questions is the instinct, right? I got this idea. Does, do we have anything that supports it? Like, what does the data say? And I think those two things do go really well together. And I think obviously you just highlighted it as a, as a great example, but just wanted to call that out because I think most good, good data scientists would say the same thing. You have to know what questions you're asking. Absolutely. No, it's super important. Well, you mentioned digital earlier on and you've been on this kind of digital transformation journey, as I recall. I think we even met or reconnected probably right around the time you took the job. And I, yeah, I'm almost 100% sure we were in New York. It was at a, a CMO event. And you were working in the kitchen, I think, still. You were doing your training. Yeah, we do a thing called trails, which is every new teammate spends a week working in the shacks and learning all the stations. And uh, it's kind of foundational to, to what we do. But then you f- you flash forward maybe, a, a, I can't remember the timing roughly, but maybe a year or two from that point forward. And then we were faced with the pandemic. And I knew you were already on starting a digital journey at that point in time. And you're still on one. Like, Tell us a little bit about where you where you started and where you are and like, where do you see the next place you want to go? Like, what's your vision for the future? Well, let's see, three weeks before COVID broke out, we were 85% of our business was guests walking into the shack 
in 15% of it was digital. So that is people engaging with us on the app, web, or through a delivery partner. Three weeks after that, we were 85% digital, right? And 15% walk up. And that was a massive switch for a company that is really invested in that physical experience and delivering hospitality through the physical channels. We had to quickly accelerate some of the things that we were looking to do anyway, but over the next few years, not the next few months. And it didn't matter if it was like improving our app, adding curbside pickup, creating Shack Track and better pickup experience for guests uh, who came in through the app, the web. We blew up our exclusive relationship with one delivery partner and basically opened it up to all of them and quickly negotiated those contracts so that you could get uh, Shake Shack from Caviar, Postmates, Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub, wherever you went because we needed those sales. So it was just a wild time. That 85% has dropped into the low 40s, but it's probably not going much lower. It's not going to 15 again. So it's an ongoing thing. I often say we've become as much of a digital business in some ways as a as a physical business and continuing to evolve our app experience, our web experience. Delivering hospitality through digital channels is something that's really important to us and is a work in progress, but it, we've really focused there on a lot of different elements to make that work well. Yeah. I'll bring my daughter back into this now because the last time we went, which was just last week, actually, maybe this weekend, if I think real hard about it. feels like the weekend was so long away, but she she ordered the food for us on our app before we got there. <laughs> But then we sat, we sat there and ate. So, uh, so I, I'm living that hybrid life with my tech-enabled 15-year-old. It's amazing where younger kids are often getting their parents to say, why are you standing in line for this food? Like, why would we not order it ahead on the app? And yeah, I hear that story constantly. And it, I even find myself doing the same thing. Old habits die hard that way. I know. Well, sometimes it, I don't know. Maybe it's my eyes too. Like I have to get out my reader glasses at this point. I'm not that old, but like my eyes start work, stop working. But now I just tell her, now I know, Amelia, please order us food. We'll go pick it up. <laughs> So anyway, fun times. But uh, I mean, it sounds like you're hitting on all cylinders, man. I'm I'm really proud of like what you guys have done and, and kudos to you and your entire team that you've built and kind of like managed through a whole lot of change, a whole lot of change over the last number of years. So it's amazing. Well, it does take a team. I mean, I will say whenever you have these podcasts, you sit here and talk about kind of yourself and your leadership. But what I've always found is trying to hire people that are smarter and better than me and so many of these critical roles and having them, you know, really empowering them to do and have clear ownership, clear expectations. I really want to be a servant leader to the team. And to do that, you've got to hire amazing people. And I think we've done a great job of that. So it's really them more than it's made, frankly. Yeah, well said, well said. But one of the things we like to do, and, and you were, the last time you were on, you missed these questions because I've developed them since then. So, um, but for all first time folks that come on or people that haven't answered these questions, there's a series of questions I like to ask. And the first one is my favorite one, which is, is there an experience of your past that you feel defines or makes up who you are today? You know, what comes to mind is when I was in college, I was actually trying to figure out a major and I could not decide what to do. I was surrounded by people that knew they were going to be a doctor 
or a lawyer or an accountant, or I know I want to do this. And I was kind of struggling with that. I knew some things I was good at and not good at, but you know, as you can hear from my background, I liked a lot of different things. I actually sat down with a good friend of my dad's who had been sort of a senior engineer at IBM, but it was just really smart, thoughtful guy. And we sat on our back porch over the summer and I was telling him my how stressful this was. And he said, listen, people are going to tell you all the time, they're going to ask you, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? You need to ignore those people because you're not one of them. You're never going to know exactly what you want to do. And you need to stop thinking about it like a career path and understand for you, it's going to be a career meadow, right? That you're going to meander through the meadow and you need to experiment with things and learn what you like and not like, but you're never going to be on a path. And at the time, that was so liberating for me to hear because I was feeling that pressure. It's hard to relate to now as we've chosen our careers. But man, at the time, I was really stressed about it. And it made me realize like, oh, yeah, I want to dip my toe in a lot of these different things. Marketing was a great place to do that, right? It's probably the broadest of all the of all the careers you can take in so many ways. And that was a very helpful piece of advice for me that that I still try to turn around and give people today. No, that's that's uh, excellent advice. Well, if you if you personally were starting all over again, is there advice you'd give your younger self, little Jay, so to speak? Well, one thing I think about a lot is another piece of advice I got that is what I would give myself even younger. I've been doing a little bit of angel investing in these companies when I first started, and I met with this really big hitting VC in town and I told him my strategy, which is like, I plan to invest this much money and I plan to get this return from it. I want to do with the non-sexy businesses that are income generating. And I laid out my whole thesis and he kind of looked at me. He's like, you were doing it all wrong, completely wrong. I said, what do you mean? He said, you need to assume you're going to lose all this money. Take the money and set it aside and make it just for your career and invest in the smartest, most interesting people you can find who are doing things that you're passionate about. And that will pay off for you in spades. Because if you just go after the money, you're competing with folks like me who have much more experience and better resources and everything else to find a lot of those winners. If you invest in these people that are lifelong relationships and that are in place spaces you want to learn a ton about, you'll get the benefit of that for years. And it'll be so much more to you than than the money you invest. And that was also great advice and something that I wish I'd known a little bit earlier because I missed out on a couple opportunities to do that because I didn't think they were, you know, they hit the numbers. So I think about that a lot. How do I choose to spend my time? Where do we as a marketing team allocate our capital? Uh, let's do it in things that we're authentically passionate about that are with people that we like their morals and values and also just love their their energy and, and vibes. And that's been a guide for me ever since then. Oh, yeah. And I was going to ask you, you answered the question, like, how does that apply outside of angel investing? But you answered. And as I was reflecting on your answer, I was like, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's almost an accelerant. Like if you're passionate about it, you're going to get more out of it. You're going to put more into it. You're going to ask better questions, <laughs> you know, if it's on, if you're the investor or you're going to get better results if you're putting your passion or your team's passion behind it, if it's in the marketing realm. So that's really smart. Well, I'm curious, a couple marketing questions for you. Are, is there any topic you think marketers need to be learning more about right now, or maybe something you're trying to learn more about yourself? I think that the answer to that question depends on what you want to do. 
if you want to be a chief marketing officer, if you want to sort of run a, a broad purview, I think the most important sort of thing you need to think about is being curious. Curiosity. It's funny. A lot of people saw the Ted Lasso first season where he's playing darts and he gives a lecture. It's kind of the end of the of the season on curiosity. And I was a little bit upset when I heard it because it was almost how I've always talked about it. And I thought he did his character did a better job of explaining it than I did. But the thing is, the eyeballs are always moving around. They're always going to new spaces, right? They're going to new social platforms. They're following new influencers. They're getting in new sports. You know, it could be pickleball. It could be gaming. It's all these things. And if you're going to be a a broad-based marketer, you need to be constantly curious about those things, even if it's not something that you're inherently interested in. I'm not a gamer, but I need to have some level of understanding of of what a gamer is into because I understand how big gaming is going to be. So I do think curiosity is something that's super important. And if I'm a younger person, I'm thinking about, sure, I've got my day job and I've got to be great at that. And I'm probably more focused there. But with my side time and my side hustle, how do I get my head up a little bit and explore all these other things that I can eventually bring into that day job, which is really why I've done so many of the other things around political stuff or story or film production or whatever. So I can sort of bring that to the day job. So I I think marketers need to be learning about everything in their space. Well, are there any um, brands, companies, causes that you follow or you think other people should be taking notice? I think for years, Yeti has done a great job. I cite them a lot at they didn't do mass advertising for a long time. I'm not sure if they actually do now, but they were great at one, having just a superior product. And then two, they generated all this original content. They actually have a, a group of short films going way back that spoke to their customers so well, and they didn't have to buy their attention. They just organically generated it with that content. It was such a great way to to spend their capital. Another one that's very recent, obviously, is you just look at Liquid Death. Like one of the unintended, they may have intended it, but the secrets to that product is like, I'm not a big drinker. And when I walk around with like a Dasani water bottle at a party or somewhere else, I kind of feel a little bit lame, right? People are like, why aren't you drinking all this stuff? When you're carrying around a liquid, a liquid death can, you don't have that same stigma. It's like, I'm not drinking water. I'm drinking this like cooler thing. Half the time you can't even tell. I think that's sort of the brilliant on their part. And they must have known that early on that that was sort of how people felt with it when they use that product. Um, along with just being really smart marketers, I think that aspect of it, the can and the design and everything else is really brilliant. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. Like I, I was somebody, actually somebody on the show I had on mentioned it and I was like, what is that? That sounds interesting. And I went and checked it out and it was completely shocking because I think the first like video or thing I saw about it was all these kids drinking out of it. And I was like, wait, what are they drinking beer? And then it took me a minute to realize it was water. And I was like, oh my God, this is hilarious. But what a great, to your point, like uh, I hadn't thought about that situation, but that would be fantastic to not be the lame guy with this water, but kind of blending in with the beer crowd. Last question for you. What do you think is the largest opportunity or threat facing marketers today? I think opportunity is continuing to invest in platforms before they blow up. So some of them are going to fail, 
But if you're early and have a little understanding in it, you're going to be way ahead of the curve when the one or two that does get there. So you've got an authentic presence in that space. And I just think that everybody allocating capital across what they get involved in needs to think about that and placing a lot of chips out there so they're ready when one of them really blows up. You just can't get too comfortable in something that's working all the time or when the eyeballs pivot, you're not ready. So I think that's a big opportunity from that side because the threat is the opposite of that, right? The threat is like we've seen with some D2C businesses and so forth. If you're really stuck in this one channel, like if paid social was your main way of growing and you hadn't built these other muscles, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble if something happens like the iOS changes or uh, you know it just gets too expensive, et cetera. So uh, I'm a big believer in always putting a little bit of money aside to put in these different areas so that you're ready when one of them blows up. Awesome. I can't agree more. And I think that takes that lesson of your angel investing and applying it, spreading spreading your investments around. Make sure you, you're, you're there when it pops. That makes a lot of sense. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great. I'm glad you came back. And again, kudos to all the success you and your team are having. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. And thanks for 300 plus episodes. That's amazing. That's an amazing track record. I appreciate that. Thank you. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with post-production support from Sam Robertson. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com. Tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love hearing from listeners. You can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes and links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.